Well, greetings again. It is a very rare day when three holidays come together on the same day. This is an incredibly unusual day, a very special day, three holy days all on the very same day. Of course, Ash Wednesday, that's why you're gathered here. We come together to mark the beginning of Lent. And then Valentine's Day, right? St. Valentine, he was a martyr. He gave his life for Jesus. And it's good that we remember all the other stuff and that's okay, but this, that's good. And then today, pitchers and catchers reported to spring training. <laughs> Three holy days all in one. Wow, I can't remember. I can't remember last time Valentine's Day fell on Ash Wednesday, and then opening day. Oh my, I just can hardly contain my enthusiasm. (laughs) Imagine for a moment with me that you awoke from a long sleep. And when you awoke, there were Christmas lights and decorations and trees, and children were outside playing, and they were hunting Easter eggs. And when they came in from hunting Easter eggs, they opened their chocolate bunnies and were eating their chocolate at the kitchen table with the tree lit in the living room. So you awake from this long sleep, you would be terribly confused, right? You would say, what is it? (laughs) Is this Christmas or is this Easter? I'm confused, what's going on? Well, if, if somebody had awoke from a long sleep on the day that we call Palm Sunday, they would have been equally confused because it was the start of Passover. And Passover is this great celebration outlined for us in the Old Testament to remember God's mighty deliverance of his people uh, from Egypt and slavery And the Passover is this holy moment and and folks congregate back in those days would congregate in Israel and the the population would swell large numbers of people there to remember the Exodus. And you awake from this long sleep and you see this crowd gathered and, and there's a man you recognize as maybe looking like a rabbi and he's riding a donkey and he's coming into town and, and people are lining the way, and they're waving these palm branches. And you would be very confused if you were a first century Jewish person. You would say, wait a minute. Is this Hanukkah or is this Passover? You see, at Hanukkah, they, they would come together and they would take palm branches and they would wave them and they would remember the great deliverance they experienced under Judas Maccabeus 200 years before. But here on this day, it's Passover and they're waving palm branches at this guy going into town. You would have been very confused. Let's add another sort of mysterious thing into the mix. Have you ever wondered, how is it, as we read in the scripture earlier, how is it that the crowd that gathered on that day that we call Palm Sunday, how is it that they could shout Hosanna 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, waving their palm branches and so excited to see this man coming into town. And five days later, they're saying, crucify him. Crucify him. And they thought, how did that happen in five days? Well, the answer to that question is connected to the question that I've already raised. To understand one is to understand the other. So what did the people want that day that they gathered on the road and welcomed Jesus into town as they waved their palm branches. We, we read here, it says they, they went out with palm branches to meet him saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. All four gospels record the triumphal entry, but only John gives us this detail. Only John that they had palm branches. John had time to reflect and to see what this really meant because his gospel was written decades later after the others. Part of it is seen in the words that they cry out that day, Hosanna. Hosanna can be interpreted, can be translated, save, please, save now. Save us. And so as they are on the side of the road and Jesus is walking by, they're saying, Hosanna, save us. Which is a quote right out of Psalm 118. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Success is what they're looking for. What's the significance of the palm branches? Was it just holiday? Was it just party decor? You know, like balloons and confetti and other kinds of things that you might have at a party for a long time. That's just what I thought. Oh, you know, I don't know about you, but when I see palm branches, I go to a very happy space because that means I'm near a beach somewhere in much warmer weather. You know, I love palm trees because it means I'm near a, 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 a temperate climate. I'm near, you know, the tropics or something like that. I love palm branches. I've, so it's always been a neat thing for me, but this was a, a symbol that meant a lot to people in the first century. Go back 200 years it's the year 164 BC. And the Jewish people have been under the boot of the Greeks. And then when the Greek empire broke up under different factions and one such leader that ruled them with an iron fist and was cruel and heartless was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He would not allow them to practice their faith. In fact, he did everything he could to, um, to, to rub the, the Jews' nose in the dirt and... And um, he took over the temple, and in the temple, they, they put up shrines to pagan gods, and they sacrificed a pig on the altar. You know, Jewish people don't eat pork. It was just a slap in the face. It was a great, great insult. Well, a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus, a freedom fighter, uh, rises up, gathers a small army, and um, drives out 
Antiochus Epiphanes and the, the occupiers. And it's one of those kind of feel-good Hollywood stories. The little guy under the boot of the big guy rises up and wins, and it's this great battle. And Hanukkah is, uh, the word literally means rededication. It was, it's, it's the Jewish re, uh, commemoration of the rededication of the temple because after the temple had been so desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes and the others that they went in and rededicated it. And there are several books between our Old and New Testaments. You know, uh, in the Catholic Bible, they include those. Those were added later. Now, as Protestants, we believe they're good books and they help us understand the history of that era. We just don't put them on the same level as of inspiration that we do the Old and, and New Testaments. But, but here you get a little picture of what happened. This is from uh, 2 Maccabees 10, 7, all right? It says here, now carrying green palm branches and sticks decorated with ivy, they paraded around singing grateful praises to him who had brought about the purification of his own temple. So you see what happened? On the day of the, the, the rededication of the temple, they celebrated the great military victory, the great political victory that day of Judas Maccabeus, and they all gathered together and they waved palm branches. So palm branches became a political symbol of victory, of power, of conquest by the sword and deliverance. So much so that um, coins from that era, Jewish coins have uh, the palm branch on it. See it there at the top, that's the backside. That's a, that's a palm branch and uh, it's, this is a coin and it was this political symbol that they would know and anybody in the first century, anybody there that day knew exactly what was going on. That's what they wanted. Save us from Rome. Save us and give our, get our nation back. That's what they wanted. So that day, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And... Um, he gives them something else and he offers them something else. Interestingly, if you remember from your, uh, the Christmas story, when they gave, the angel told uh, Mary that his name was to be Jesus, we know that the name Jesus means the Lord saves. His very name means salvation. The Lord saves. And they're lining the streets, save us, save us. Jesus decides to pull a little symbolism out of his own hat. He gets on a donkey and he comes down the Mount of Olives. You can walk that trail today. You see, if Jesus wanted to play along and give them what they wanted, he would have uh, mounted a large horse, a white horse, preferably, and he would have triumphantly ridden into town 
as the king. Come, follow me. Now's the time. Let's go. Let's kick Rome out. Let's do this thing. But instead, in fulfillment of the prophecy in in Zechariah, he writes a donkey, it says, rejoice, in Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Victory means different things to different people. He came riding victoriously because he came to carry a cross and to go to his death. And by doing so, he would bring salvation to God's people, to the Gentiles, to the Romans. You see, the cross was not a tragedy. It was a strategy. It was the plan from the beginning. Jesus had been telling his disciples for months, son of man is gonna be betrayed, handed over to the Romans, tried, flogged, beaten, spit on, and killed. And the third day he will rise again. He's been telling them, but they simply don't get it. John wants us to understand that all of this here, they don't get. Remember after the Hosanna and blessed is he who comes and says at first his disciples did not understand all this. What they understood was Jewish nationalism. That's what they understood. Every single one of them was a Jewish nationalist. Every single one of them wanted Rome out and their, and their nation back. That's what they wanted. And so when Jesus starts this talk about dying and not being a military general, they don't understand it. They don't get it. Um, and so there's this confusion. What's, what's going on here? Because he had a different strategy. Some believe that it was at that moment or at or right about that time that Judas, who was probably more of a Jewish nationalist than the others, said, I'm done with this. This isn't what I bought into. So he secretly steals away and betrays Jesus. Um, Salvation by the one whose name was the Lord saves will come, but it will not come in the manner or the way in which they envisioned it would come. It would come through the greatest act of sacrificial love the world has ever known. That the victory is won by love. By love. Not by the sword. Not by power. By love. Well, this is not what the crowd wanted. So we go to 
John 18, Pilate is trying Jesus and he realizes that there's no case against him. He said, I find no basis of a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. May I ask you a question? How do they go from Hosanna to crucify him? Friends, the crowd didn't change their mind. They were consistent in what they wanted. They changed leaders. They wanted political freedom. They wanted victory over their enemies. They didn't want a cross. And instead they asked for Barabbas. Now, Barabbas, we're told, had, had, had uh, participated in an insurrection. He had killed a Roman soldier. Now, people are puzzled over this because Barabbas is a last name. It's a surname. It means son of Abba, son of the father. The early church tells us his first name. The scriptures do not. Do you know what his name was? His first name? Jesus. Jesus was a common name in the first century. His name was Jesus Barabbas. So when given an opportunity between Jesus Barabbas, the Jewish nationalist who had killed a Roman and proved his mettle because that's what they wanted and the choice between this Jesus of Nazareth who rides into town on a donkey and wants to die Give us Jesus Barabbas. That's what we want. We want freedom. We want to see our enemies die. We want to win. Why would we follow a savior, a Messiah who dies? No, the crowd never changed their mind. They changed leaders because they were very clear on what they wanted all along. Salvation from Rome. not God's salvation. Which begs a question here on this day. What do we want? Who do we want? I hope we want Jesus of Nazareth. I hope we want love. I hope we really do believe that love is the greatest power on the face of the earth. What do we want? Um, I'm afraid sometimes for Christians, we want to win. We want our nation back. We want to beat our enemies. When I was a kid at our elementary school, we had uh, generous recesses and we would play kickball. Uh, kickball is still like one of my favorite all-time participation sports. Um, and, and so we'd play and we would pick teams and we would play together often for the whole semester. 
And I don't know if you did this, if, I don't know if it's a St. Louis thing, but when our team would win and the bell would ring and we'd head in, we were winning, we'd all chant together, we won, kind of like that cadence. Did anybody else do that in their schoolyard? That must have, huh? No one else? Must have just been a St. Louis thing. Yeah, we would all chant, we won. It was so satisfying, you know? And it was so humiliating when the other guys were saying, we won, you know? Danielle Strickland is um, a person I hold in high regard. She's a Salvation Army pastor and a tireless advocate for the poor. She writes about the crowds in Jerusalem. They weren't asking God to save them so much as they were asking God to join them in saving themselves. And as much as it may sound like the same thing, it is indeed a completely different thing altogether. Help us help ourselves is the age-old idea of religion and politics and the dangerous mix of them together is a toxic potion of saving, but not from ourselves, just from them, the others, those who aren't like us. The same cry is uttered from every other crowd since, including me. I say, save me, but what I mean is on my terms. I cry, save me, but what I mean is please let me win. Let me be the best. Let me land at the top. Let me be the special one. Let me be the right one. Let me be the chosen one. Please elevate me. Be on my side is the, is the Hosanna I shout most of the time. On the weekends, we're doing a series on money, which is always a hugely popular subject for folks to hear about from church. The first weekend, I pulled out this old book that's falling apart, Richard Foster's Money, Sex, and Power. And I got it shortly after it came out in 1985. I did a series on this back in the, in the theater days. And um, on the weekend, we're talking about Money. And what he says in here is, is, is that the three greatest battlegrounds for the Christian in life are in the arenas of money, sex, and power. The greatest temptations that you will know morally and ethically will occur on the grounds, on the battlegrounds of money, sex, and power. Um, talking about money on the weekends, we'll talk about sex another time. But tonight, let's talk just a word about power. Richard Foster wrote this 40 years ago. Power can be an extremely destructive thing in any context. But in the service of religion, it is downright diabolical. Religious power can destroy in a way that no other power can. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this is especially true in religion those who are a law unto themselves and at the same time take on a mantle of piety are particularly corruptible. When we are convinced that what we are doing is identical with the kingdom of God, anyone who opposes us must be wrong. When we are convinced that we always, when we are convinced that we always use our power to good ends, we believe we can never do wrong. But when this mentality possesses us, we are taking the power of God and using it for our own ends. Friends, the lure of power, the lure of winning, 
the lure of our side winning and beating our enemy is so powerful. It's a, it's a trap and a great temptation. And on this is Ash Wednesday, 2024, in this election year, in this political year, it is a message we must hear. The danger of power. Which brings us to Ash Wednesday. Now just go ahead and admit it. Some of y'all have been saying, what is Ron talking about Palm Sunday for on Ash Wednesday? Is Pastor Ron a little confused tonight? No, not really. Just a little bit after the message, we're gonna invite you to do what Christians have done for centuries, and that is to receive ashes on your forehead they are typically placed on the forehead for two reasons. One, to remind us of our mortality, and secondly, as a symbol of repentance. Do you know where the ashes come from traditionally? Okay, ours came from Amazon. Okay, just don't, don't forget about that. <laughs> Do you know where they come from? Burning the palm branches from the previous Palm Sunday. Do you see what just happened there? Do you follow that? On Ash Wednesday, we burn our conceptions of power and our conceptions of winning and nationalism and all of that. And we go the way of the cross. And we remind, we, we die and burn to ash our human hopes and desires for strength and power. We burn it to ash. And anything that is contrary to love, we burn it. We say, I don't want this. I want to choose the path of the cross. In life, we are tempted often to want to win, to get our way, to get our nation back. The only way is the way of love, sacrificial love, where you lay your life down for the other. Because, friends, the meek still inherit the earth. Jesus said that on the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek are not weak. Don't, it, it, it rhymes, but it's far from it. Meek is power under control. Meek is surrendered power. Meek is power that is not claimed. Yesterday marked the 333rd anniversary of the funeral of a man named Nicholas Herman in France. He died the day before, the age of, um, he was 75, I think. And um, Nicholas Herman lived an interesting life as a young man. He was a veteran for, in the 30 years war for the French army. Uh, as a young man, he's 18 years old. He, he sustained a terrible leg injury that stayed with him the rest of life. Medical care was not very good in those days. Later it would uh, be so debilitating he could no longer walk. 
And so uh, he, he suffered from that. And one person writes of him, um, about him, that he was a disabled veteran living with a leg injury, a former prisoner of war, raised in poverty, lacking a traditional education. He was a failed religious hermit. He tried to be a hermit once. That didn't go too well. An ex-footman, a self-dubbed clumsy oaf, a survivor of religious wars, a sufferer of anxiety, a man often in physical agony from his injuries, and a cook and a sandal repair. Late in his 20s, he decided to become a lay brother, which means he joined a Carmelite monastery as a friar and would spend the next 50 years as a monk. Most of the time, he washed dishes. He worked in the kitchen, a task he it said he didn't particularly enjoy to do, but he did. When his leg became so bad that he could no longer stand for great intervals of time, he had to repair, he had to go to a different kind of work. And so they put him in charge of the, of the, 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 the shoe um, little room where shoe store in the monastery and he would repair sandals for the other monks. But he became so incredibly adept at praying at all times and all places and whatever he was doing that people sought him out and wanted to learn from him and wanted to get close to him and learn of his wisdom, even though he was uneducated and kind of rough on the outside. Nobody outside of the monastery knew much of Nicholas Herman. Oh, but at the time, Louis XIV was king of France. And these were the glory days of France. Louis XIV was the, is to this day the longest reigning monarch in world history. Queen Elizabeth almost caught him. She, she missed, cat, missed passing him by two years. Louis XIV reigned for 72 years as king and he was the self-dubbed son king. And again, France was on the ascent. He was powerful, respected around the world. He built the palace at Versailles, which I had the privilege of visiting our family back in 06, and it is magnificent to this day in its opulence and splendor and architectural beauty. There's this portico, and then there's the famous hall of mirrors, just stunning. 72 years he reigned on the throne. How many of you have read stuff that Louis XIV wrote? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's what I expected. If someone raised their hand, I, I, I don't know what I'd have done. Um, I guess French school children still probably have to answer a few questions in French history about Louis XIV. Most of us don't know who he was, even though he's longest reigning monarch in history. Oh, Nicholas Herman. When he joined the monastery, he had his name changed, which was customary. His name was changed to to Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection, or Brother Lawrence for short. A year after he was born, a friend of his took his writings, compiled them because he was too humble to put it down himself. He exuded so much spiritual wisdom and that he put it all together in, in a volume that Brother, Louis, Brother Lawrence often called Practicing the Presence of God, where he, for every moment of every day, tried to stay consciously aware of the presence of God. And the book, 300 and 32 years later, is still in print. I just got a new translation. I read it when I was a teenager. I bought a new one last month and read it. 
inspired my soul to this day. It has been read by millions of people down through the ages. Still 332 years later, people are marveling and getting spiritual insight and wisdom of this and nobody knew who he was. The meek inherit the earth. Listen now. Everything in our culture is gonna be telling you that the presidential election in November is the most important thing of the world. Most important thing this year. Now, I love my country. I vote, vote every time. But don't fall for that line. 330 years from now, the events of this year may be, may be a footnote in a history book somewhere. Maybe. But you know what I think? Somewhere out in Bollinger County or the rolling hills of Iowa or in the mountains of Appalachia is living in obscurity and walking closely with God and is writing down thoughts. And maybe 330 years from now, someone will be reading that. And the election of 2024, wow, oh that. The meek still inherit the earth. Keep it in perspective. So on Ash Wednesday, this is the day that we let it burn. And this didn't burn. That's not good. All right. I like fires, except when they don't cooperate. Mm. I'm going to give this one try, folks. This is what happens on live TV, you know? <laughs> you just have to kind of live with this sometimes. I'm going to see if that uh, catches fire or not. I don't think it will but I've got some very dry palm branches here. Last Wednesday. Come on, baby. There we go. There we go. Picture a fire raging. Amen. Let's go home. <laughs> Never mind. Sages through the centuries have said that your greatest temptations will come in the arenas of money, sex, and power. And this year, you will be tempted to lean on a power that is not from God. It's from the other Jesus, Barabbas. Let's decide now to die to that, to die to every effort to save ourselves and to throw ourselves on the ground and to pray and to love and to serve and to walk the way of the cross trusting in the resurrection that is to come.
trusting in the resurrection that is to come. Trusting in the resurrection that is to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you meet us here. Thank you for this day where we burn our hopes, our ideas of salvation and surrender. We raise the white flag and we lift high the cross. Empower us. Would you give us the greatest power on the face of the earth? Love. Because in the end, love wins. Now faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. May we walk the way of the cross. Hey, we're so glad you tuned in today. If you like this video, don't forget to give it a thumbs up and share it with anyone you think could benefit. We're excited about all the content we have coming up and can't wait for you to see it. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss out. And if you're curious about LaCroix or if you're looking to take the next step on your journey with Jesus, check out LaCroixChurch.org. We hope to see you again soon.